This is the podcast of Ithaca College's NAFME Chapter 219. We are your hosts, Raylene Ford and Caitlin Schneider. Our chapter president, Laura Sefchak, will be introducing our guest for today, Dave Miller. We hope you enjoy. This is Dave Miller. He currently teaches in an elementary school and also does jazz band at a high school. And correct me if I'm wrong, you teach some lessons at a university in New Jersey. Is that still happening? Yeah, I, I teach jazz trombone down at Princeton. Yeah, and actively gigs and performs. Well, I did actively gig until, yes. you know, uh, I've had since March 15th of 2020, I've did five gigs. And one of them, half the band ended up getting COVID after the gig. So, you know, I escaped luckily. How did you get to where you are now in your career? So I started out as a trombone player. And uh, when I was about 15 or 16 years old, all of a sudden I started getting hired through the church that I went to. Our music pastor hooked me up with some gospel bands in the Chicago area. I'm originally from Chicago. So I started playing gospel music, you know, and he's got these like funk gospel bands when I was 15, 16 years old. And all of a sudden I found out I could make money playing the trombone. I said, whoa, you know, wild, are you kidding me? And that was when I said, you know, this is gonna be my career path. This is what I wanna do with my life. I ended up, my last year in high school, I went up to Interlochen Arts Academy where I had some, some great training there, playing in the orchestras and the jazz band up there. And I ultimately, when it came time to make college decisions, I applied to a few different universities and I ultimately ended up going to the University of North Texas, which has an incredible music program. And I was going there because I, I wanted to major in jazz studies, jazz performance. And um, that was one of the great schools and there were some great instructors there. So I had a great time there, but I, I, I hate to say this to you, I only lasted there three semesters. When I was 19 years old, during my sophomore year in college, I got a call from Artie Shaw's big band to audition to play trombone in the band. So I played body and soul over the telephone to the band leader and they dug it and they hired me. So I left college and I did not return. That was it for me, because once there, just started, you know, started playing professionally. Moved to New York, into New York City in December of 1991, because I knew that if I, if you want to pursue a career in music, your two places are New York and LA, unless you're like a, a, a guitar player, country musician can go to Nashville. But if, but if you want to go to the places where you can work, these are really your two options. So I worked for years all around New York City. Ended up, I was a commercial trombone player. Really what I like to say, how I ended up was, I ended up playing a ton of Afro-Cuban music, a lot of salsa music. So I considered myself a salsa musician with a jazz habit. You know, but ultimately, the work I was doing was a lot of commercial work. I played with a lot of salsa superstars where we travel the world. I played and record with Harry Connick Jr. for about four years. Ended up doing a lot of some Broadway stuff, which was interesting. Here's what happens. So I'm working a lot. You know, when I first moved to New York, I did get a straight job. I was working down at the Tower Records on 4th Street, you know, and I slowly networked and was able to 
end up getting on gigs and work. And eventually I was getting enough work where I could make a living as a professional musician. And so I, I stopped working in 1996 and just worked as a musician from that time on, full time. So when we get to 9-11 happens and all of a sudden the live music business is dead for months on end. And I had just had a daughter, had been married for one year, just had a baby. And now my primary source of income gone. I mean, you know, it was, it was very similar to COVID. Nothing's happening, you know, and the rent is due and the, you know, you're slowly running out of So eventually the music scene starts to come back, but I can see kind of like the writing on the wall is this, you know, to earn a living as a musician post 9-11, it's going to be t more difficult than it was before then. And also now I've got, now I'm married, now I have a daughter. So now, you know, the, the ante is getting upped. A friend of mine got hired to be the professor at Rutgers University. And uh, he called me up and he said, hey Dave, why don't you come get your master's? You know, you can get a university teaching gig. And I told him, well, you know, I'd love to do that, but I never even finished the bachelor's. So he said, don't worry, we'll work it out. So I ended up in 2004, I went back to college at Mason Grove School of Arts down at Rutgers. And uh, I, I, I did the hard, hardcore squeeze. I basically took 24 credits for four semesters straight to graduate. This is while I was also babysitting my mom, my daughter during the day, doing like a Mr. Mom routine and gigging at night. So I'd be out doing like, doing a nightclub hit, 2.30 in the morning doing a salsa gig, making sure I had enough candles on the table so I could write out, you know, so I could do my music theory homework. It was, you know, so it was pretty wild. Eventually I do that and I get the masters. And uh, the plan was to do university teaching. But once I graduated, the town right next to me had an open teaching position at the middle school level. In retrospect, this was a slight mistake. I had gotten degrees in performance. I had taken no education classes. So here in New Jersey, they had a system called alternate route, where you could get a certificate of, to be eligible to become a teacher. And if a school district would hire you, you'd have to take two years worth of night school classes to get your full certificate. The people at, at this district liked me a lot, and so they hooked me up with that. And over the course of the next two years, uh, ultimately I gained my full certificate. This may or may not happen to you in your teaching career, but like my first year, I had a run from January to June at one school. But like in early May, they said, hey, guess what? Your position's history, you're done. You know, since you're the most recent person hired, you're gonna be the first person that's out the door. I was fortunate enough to land on my feet at my current position. I guess I kind of interview well, and recording three Grammy award-winning records is like, that pops off the resume a little bit, even though it doesn't mean really mean anything. You know, ultimately, as musicians, you know what that deal is. But to a principal who sees that, though, whoa, what's going, oh, what's... So that's how I got into, and I have to be honest, I have a preference for beginners. 
I like beginners. I like, first of all, I love little kids. They're just, they're delightful to be around, they're fun. You get to start them off and that's always exciting. And I guess uh, uh, some people can't have patience for hearing like the sounds of beginners. You know, Cause it can be pretty, it can be pretty wild in there. I've done a ton of free jazz gigs where we're supposed to sound like that. So, you know, I mean, it's cool. I get it, it's all right. And so that's basically my story on how I came to teach. Now, once, I will be honest with you, once I started teaching, the balance between a professional musician and teaching, so there were certain gigs I wouldn't do anymore. Like a 3 a.m. salsa gig in Washington Heights on a Tuesday night, I'm not doing those anymore because you can't wake up. Well, this was right when I got hired for my second gig where I'm currently at Randolph. The next day, I got a call to go to do two months of Japan and China starting in September. And so that was like the, wait a minute, do I take the teaching gig? Do I take the music? Do I, do I go and keep on playing? You know, and it's a difficult decision. What am I gonna do? I had made a commitment that I was gonna teach. And so it becomes a question of what are you willing to do? Like I told you guys, I still play every day. I'm never gonna give up playing. Can't do it, you know, until I'm physically unable. You have to make some hard choices. Like there's a thing that's referred to as band director chops, that once people become band directors, they're like not practicing, you know? So like your main instrument, it falls by the wayside. Uh, I was never a believer in that. We're all here because we love to, I would imagine, because we love to play our instrument. And then the beauty of teaching is we can share our joy of music and what it's given to us, you know, personally. And we can share that with, with children and help them, you know, perhaps have the great experiences that we've had been able to play and share with other musicians. So that's basically the gist of where I'm at right now. You know, the touring, any sort of touring disappeared. Well, not this past summer, but during the summer, I might get like a two week stretch in Spain somewhere. There might be a couple of gigs in Italy, fly around, do some things like that. But any sort of involved touring, once you're teaching, that goes by the wayside. And one of the trickier things is, like this time of year normally, after New Year's Eve, the work dries up because nobody's going out. Everybody spent all their money on holiday gifts or going out for New Year's. So January is usually a pretty dead month. Now, in my case, the work would usually pick up early February because I used to do some Brazilian gigs. So I'd do like carnival gigs, some samba stuff, stuff like that, you know, or do some New Orleans style gigs for Fat Tuesday. But what can happen is you can end up with like, I guess my longest run was 35 days without a day off. So this would be, yeah, about five straight weeks of teaching during the day and then either gigs and rehearsals at night or gigs and rehearsals on Saturdays and Sundays. And after a while, you don't want to say no, right? You don't want to say no when you get called for a gig, especially when the bread is right. But at a certain point, it's like, you know, I, I need to sleep, I need to rest. You kind of make trade-offs like that. Have you ever found your gigs to be accommodating since you're also a teacher full-time? Um, no. Okay. No, no, it's a great question. Um, 
I let everybody in my network who would usually call me for work or who I would reach out to work that, you know, daytime gigs are out. So there's a couple of groups that I play with regularly and every once in a while they'll have a great daytime gig. And, um, you know, I just, I can't, um, look, I'll be honest. If the bread is real great, I'll take a personal day. But I've made a commitment to work with the kids, so I like to do that. This was a couple of years ago. A band I normally play with, they got called to do uh, just a quick TV shoot for the Mrs. Maisel TV show. But I had, I actually had a, a faculty meeting with all the band people. So I was like, I can't, I can't blow this off. Even though I could go make $1,000 and be on TV. But I, I couldn't blow it off, you know. So unless you've got like great relationships, it's usually not accommodating. Like, hey, can I send a sub and just make the gig? You know, sometimes that'll work. I have another question. Do you yes. ever get flack from either side for either being a teacher or being a performer? Like, do you ever get judged for doing elementary band from one side or the other? Or I'm, I'm curious what that relationship is like. Okay. The, you know, music, the people who are strictly musicians love it because they, they see somebody who's on the front lines working as a musician that's also teaching, you know, passing on the knowledge. You know, that's really what it is for me. It's passing on what I know to my students to, to hopefully light a spark underneath them. Going the other way, the only kind of flack I ever had, and it was kind of a weird situation. And uh, someone suggested to me that because I was so naturally talented, that maybe it was difficult, right, naturally talented, give me a break, uh, that I was so naturally talented that maybe I couldn't relate to students who were having difficulty physically producing sounds or, or being able to pass on things that, I mean, really playing seriously for 30 years, you don't give a second thought to. And I did catch a, a little flack for it, but ultimately it was, it was really super insulting. It was super insulting because I practiced, I worked. Did I have a little a natural ability when I started? Yes. But I mean, I, you know, I worked very hard to be able to, to do what I do. Like when I got my elementary teaching gig, I, didn't, I, I only played trombone. I didn't play any other instrument. So I taught myself how to play everything else. And uh, I, was, I was doing, uh, in the Heights, I was the sub on In the Heights, and the trombone player sits here, and the first woodwind player like sat right here looking at me. And she would play alto, she played tenor, she played flute, and she played some clarinet. And I told her, I said, hey look, when you've got the flute stuff, I'm gonna sit there and stare at you and watch how you play flute, because I just have, I don't even know where my hands go. And it was like, you know, I turned around when she'd have the flute stuff, and she, and then she showed me how the embouchure, the works, you know. The musicians were very accommodating. They love it. Yeah, it sounds like you kind of got to learn from them. So it's almost like you gave them this like professional view, even if they were beginner band students. So I feel like that kind of enhanced it in a way. I hope so. I hope so. Just in your switch to education, yeah. that whole, you know, part of your life, this might be like I'm not trying to roast you, but would no, you go have gone into <laughs> would you have gone into education um, if it weren't for like the financial stress? Here's the deal: I I made the determination that the best way to provide for my family was to take on teaching, and once I decided that that's what I was going to do, I was all in. 
There wasn't a moment of hesitation once I made the decision, nor any regrets. I mean, I've, done, I've had great playing musical experiences since I've become a teacher. Looking back on it, especially now, with so, my, so many of my friends like sweating, hopefully hoping that they could because they're musicians, that they still in one year haven't got, haven't played to get paid and are struggling to be able to qualify for the for the unemployment benefits. This was the right decision. It was, um, you know, here's one other thing. You know what, that's such a great question. Check this out. When I was about 25, I was doing a gig up in the Bronx. This was in a nightclub. It was kind of late and the normal trumpet player who was playing with the band couldn't make it. So he was sending a substitute and the sub came and he was an older guy. And by older, I mean like early 70s. And he had like three different sets of glasses on his head. You know, when we're setting up his music, he's got a million lights, takes a long time to warm up. And then once we started to play, it was a disaster. You know, he, he was finished. He had, he had hung on for too long. And he was trying to, you know, but he was still trying to work because he's got a, you know, this is what he does. And when I saw that, I was like, you know, I can't. That was something that always stuck in the back of my mind. I don't want to be, I don't want to be playing in nightclubs when I'm 75 years old. You know, that's not something I want to do. Th things can change on a dime. The business aspect can be rough. When I first moved to New York, the plan was this. So this was. December of 91. So January of 92, the plan was I, we, I was going to be flying into New York and two days later, and this is, this is how long ago it was, we were going to be going, I was going on a tour of South Africa with the Temptations at the, at the invitation of Nelson Mandela. This was before he was president. It was, it was about a year after they had let him out of prison. And so he was bringing all sorts of musical groups, cultural acts, artists. He was bringing a, like a cavalcade from across the world to come and tour South Africa. And uh, the bread was real good. And so it was gonna be able to, to pay for my first six months of staying in New York. I'm in New York and the day before we're supposed to leave, the government, the government cancels out cancels out everything. No bread, no payment, no nothing. So now all of a sudden, you know, my six months of cushion <laughs> in New York is is zero is zero and I'm gonna I'm gonna go hustle and find a work. So you can see these kind it can be uh, a tough a, a tough mistress as they say if you know what I mean. So I have a kind of like broad question uh, along educational lines. Um, sure. So I know Raylene and I, I don't know, maybe some other people are taking a class right now about teaching beginning instrumental music. And I was just wondering like, what are some like key philosophies that you use or like what are like some of your key goals as like a beginning band director, I guess, okay. when you go about teaching it? So the most important th okay I, I don't want to say the most important because it's important to me and everyone's going to have a different idea don't let anybody shove their ideas down your throat take from what you hear from other people and hopefully you can find something that works for you here's what i want if you're we're talking about wind instruments 
every student has to be able to tongue. I don't teach slurring in fifth grade because if they start to slur, then all of a sudden the tonguing disappears forever. The first thing we want all the students tonguing. Number two, I want the students to know that the sound is produced by the air. And so I've got, you know, I've got to have them doing breathing acts. We, we practice like <gasps> taking giant breaths, building lung capacity. I think if a, if a beginning student by right around this time in the school year can play a scale in thirds, that they're in business. And it's, it's something as simple as that. Um, so in the beginning, it's let's get on the floor and put the instruments together. The next thing is making sure to try to get everybody within the first couple of weeks to have what appears to be a solid embouchure. If I've got a clarinet player who's real loose, it's gonna be flat all the time, right? Or trumpet, you know, brass players, we got to make sure that those corners are firm and that they're shooting that air through the horn. For my percussionists, we want them to be alternate, alternating their, their sticking piston style for both drums and mallets. So that, that's the technical side. And that has to be stressed incredibly. But remember, we're trying to play music. So I'm always also offering them musical examples to listen to in our lessons, you know, and try and getting them to play with dynamics early on, you know, teaching them how to, in fact, put more air through your horn so you can get louder and softer. These are things that you want to address pretty early on, like those type of you know, the, the thing was this, when I had, when we would have a full band rehearsal, I would rehearse the, the, a fifth grade, a fifth grade band of beginners after they've had a couple of rehearsals to know what the procedures are. I would rehearse them like I'd rehearsed a big band when I taught at Rutgers. It was, the expectations are here. We all know basically what we're doing. So let's hit it. And if you set the, if you, it was what my dad used to put called put the cookies on the top shelf. If you make sure that your kids know that you've got super high expectations for them, you know, they're gonna they're gonna try to deliver the goods every time. When we when we play, like for example now, um, our students, I'm teaching them virtually. So but we'll always have the chat box on the side open for the students to make when they're not playing to make positive comments about what other people are doing are they listening you know you ask them well how do you think it sounded and most of the time they're going to think it sounded better than they better than it was so are you going to tell them it's good when it's not so i don't i mean i don't sit there and say oh my what's going on you know but i will say if they, if they say, I think it was okay, I said, okay, that's great. Let's say I'm going out for a steak dinner. And um, when I'm finished with the meal, I say, hey, you know what? That was okay. Okay ain't having it, right? When I finish that steak dinner, I want to be like, oh, wow, this is maybe a top 10 meal all time. This is the greatest. Thing. When we're finished, you know, so if you set up high expectations, 
you know, they will definitely try to deliver. When you get jobs, when you start teaching, when you pick literature, you know, I've kind of got a, I got a system. I want to play something that I think they're capable of, you know, usually a march, march type thing. I want to play something fun, like a pop tune, something maybe they know, or something that's exciting, maybe something with a band vocal, something. And then I want to play something hard that that they probably can play, but they're going to have to work real hard to make it sound good. Just keep your expectations high. Does that sound reasonable? When they play a whole note, make sure they play all the way to beat one. Right? You'd be stunned at how many people when they're playing and all of a sudden they get to beat four. Well, wait, I played four counts. You know? And if you get them early on, early on, understanding that you're in business and they're in business and you got you know and this is the other thing for beginners you got to keep it fun you know personality or have them doing fun stuff in addition to me but and you'd want to have them playing as much as possible you know I'm a talker but like and I never realized how much I talked until somebody re recorded one of my lessons and, and uh, played it for me and I was like, oh my God, this is embarrassing. When does this guy shut up? You know, I mean, we'll play, I'll talk, we'll play, I'll talk, we'll play, I'll talk. I said, no, no, you know, the more time that your students can, can work on playing in front of you so you can hear them, it's the, bet, the better. Because then when there's slight things that need to be adjusted, you're, re you're ready to jump on it and help them. Sound good? wanted to go back to your experience and talk about when you transitioned kind of from uh, professional musician to teacher yeah and you managed to do both at the same time how was that initially getting into the classroom and then also trying to maintain your uh practice even just your practice routine was there was that difficult or um what went into it okay that's uh, thank you that's a good question that's a great question you will find that you have free time when you're teaching so my first year my free time was spent practicing all the instruments that I couldn't play you know I said okay as long as this was this is horrible but I said okay as long as I can stay one page ahead of the kids I'm in business right you know when I'm learning how to play flute you have this time that they refer to as prep time you know you'll have periods off and I would practice the other instruments then or piano you know and now occasionally, you know, you can practice your trombone. What I tried to do was, I tried to make sure that all my work regarding school was done during the time that I was at school. Like at lunchtime, I'd go hang out in, in you know, in the teacher's lounge and eat my lunch. But I, you know, if I had, if I had uh, grades to enter, I'd enter in grades. If I had lessons planned to write, lesson plans to write, I'd be writing them while I'd be eating lunch, or any sort of documentation, catch up on emails, whatever needs to be done. I'd always try to make sure that that was done on school, on on the hours that I was at school. So when I came home, I could practice, or so when I or you know so when I left school, I'd go straight to a rehearsal. You know, I'd flutter my chops and buzz them on the car over, so I'd be ready to play. Um, and, and the level of my playing, 
uh, has got, well, I mean, you know, I just keep on practicing. Just, it gets, it's, uh, there are some times when it's maintenance and my, pra you know, and I'm just maintaining where I'm at, you know, and then there's, there's other periods where I'm really practicing a ton and, you know, getting more accomplished than I'd like. Uh, you know, but the, the, the maintenance aspect, especially when you're trying to remain active professionally, is super important. Because everybody knows how you sound. And like, um, as a trombone player, it's like, you know, if I take one day off, you know, and then I go back to play, I'm going to notice. But if I take two days off, everybody else is going to, in my mind, you know, everybody else is going to notice. So I tried to maintain, you, you, it's like, somebody once told me, look, people do what they like to do. And I like to play my trombone. So since I like to play my trombone, I'm gonna find time to play my trombone. You know, if that means I'm gonna practice mute at 1.30 in the morning while my wife and daughter are asleep and I'm down in the basement, all right, okay. All right, because I didn't get, get anything in that day, then I do it. So for, perform, for, for being able to maintain on my instrument, it was relatively easy. Psychologically, it was difficult to turn down a gig. I'm not going to lie. You don't want to say no. <laughs> because, you know, you want to work. You like to work, and the concern is you say, one, you say no too many times, and the, then the phone stops ringing as a professional. You want people to know you're reliable and that you're available. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's important for a lot of people, especially, in, I'm a senior right now, and I know a lot of my friends are in the position where they're gonna be trying to figure out, well, I wanna keep performing and I wanna keep teaching. So it's definitely those skills that you talked about are huge, I think, if you wanna maintain. Right, and I mean, we've played, so we've played our instruments, right, for, you know, eight to ten years at least. I'm I'm assuming is that roughly roughly. Why would you stop now? You know, now Frank Lacey told me this. When it comes to trombone, he goes, you know, once you get thirty, then you kind of finally really figure out how to play the darn thing. You know, after you've been playing it for twenty years, then you kind of oh wait a minute, I get it now. The more time you put in it, all of a sudden it starts to feel. I don't want to say easier, but uh, you know. The more you learn, the more there is to learn. And that was told to me by Slide Hampton, who was probably one of the greatest jazz trombone players ever. When he was about 80, he told me that. He's like, I'm still learning every day. I can't wait to wake up, pick up my horn and start practicing. But teaching has been, it's been wonderful. You know, I've, I've really enjoyed working with, working with students and uh, trying to help them, trying to get, get them off on the right foot. And it's like you're, you're responsible for, you know, what they think about music. Well, I'll tell you how I got the you When it comes time for teaching, this this can go back to, to what I like to focus on. Um, I, when I got hired for my, my second position, I went in as a long-term sub for uh, the, the teacher went on a, who I was replacing went out on maternity leave. And one of the things that she that uh, that she did was that she left me a bunch of her sample lesson plans and things that that she that she had done. One of the things that I noticed was 
like every other lesson they were like working on stuff that was not actually playing their instruments like reading a book about music or doing a musical crossword or you know um writing about their feet their emotions about how they feel about playing i said well you know um maybe the best use of the time in the band room is playing their instruments and if they and if they receive us if they achieve a certain level they can actually express their emotions through their instrument as opposed to writing about it because i know you know one of the things i like i loved about band and one of the you know was hey i got to get out of class you know <laughs> i get to go yeah i get to get out of class and go play an instrument you know my my favorite class is recess lunch gym and band so you know and um you wanted to keep i'll keep them keep keep them playing that was I, I really it's been it's been a delight to work with the kids i love it um and the ages at various age differences the, the students are different you know so in my district the beginners are all in fifth grade so that's usually 10 years a few are nine some are 11 but that's great uh, the middle school years um those can be wild because the kids you know uh, they're getting the, the full the full dose of hormones, so it's it's it, it's it's pretty wild. And then uh, the high school job, I found that the high school job is not conductive to maintaining uh, uh, being a professional musician. If you if you do high school, there are so many extra obligations involved that you know I, I would imagine you know you're you're doing the marching band. You're doing the jazz band. You're doing the, the, you know, most likely you're directing the pit orchestra if you if they if they do a, a musical. So, you know, that's that's a lot of a lot of evenings just eaten up. You know, where normally you might be working. What is one thing you wish you knew before you started teaching? Ooh, wow. <laughs> Uh, you want okay yeah no it's a good question i wish i would have known the verbiage of education i didn't take any of these edu like i said i i got my i got my teaching certificate as through the alternate route what they refer to in new jersey as alternate route so ultimately i did have to take those those edu like an ed educational classes but if i would have had the verbiage down you know, and, and if I would have known how much time I would spend not teaching, even though I was a teacher, that I was unprepared for. If somebody would have told me, you have to do a certain layer of busy work that nobody cares about, but you're going to have to do it every year, the same stuff over and over, I would have said, oh, that's nice to know, you know. And if I would have, you know, and then in the busy work that I had to do, if I would have known the verbiage, I really could have dressed the stuff up to look really good. You know, uh, over the years, I've, I've, I've learned, you know, I've tried to acclimate myself to that. Um, and that, I guess that would be the one thing. 
I was totally unprepared for the amount of paperwork that I would have to do. I had no clue. No clue. Um, when it came time, when it came to the teaching thing, the teaching thing really, it kind of felt like second nature. You know, I know how to play and I have a connection with kids. They dug, you know what helped too? My daughter was right around the same age when I first started teaching as the kids I was teaching. So, you know, I, I was, you know, I knew Hannah Montana. I saw them all, you know, I saw the Lion King every day for three years in a row, you know, I, so the Jonas Brothers, the whole deal, like everything that was hot at that time, I was like right on board with. And I'm sorry if that seems like a super lame answer. Because it kind of is. I, I, the thing is, I saw so much crazy stuff in the music business that it, would been, it was really kind of hard to shock me. <laughs> Does that make sense? I mean, it's not, a, it's not a great answer for your question, but that was the one thing I was really the most surprised by. What courses or, or um, seminars have you taught? Can you maybe give us a little highlight of how you've done in college? Oh yeah, okay. So, um, uh, when I, I, at, Rutgers, at Rutgers University uh, for six semesters, I directed one of the jazz bands there. So that included, you know, selecting all the music, engaging guest artists, putting together programs, ticket selling, that sort of deal, you know, promotional work. Uh, I would also, I also substituted for the arranging instructor there. When he couldn't, on, on certain days when he couldn't make it, he'd let me know and I would have to put together, uh, let's see, we did, a couple of separate courses, one on the arranging style of Wayne Shorter for the Jazz Messengers, and another one on the arranging style of a big band work by Charles Tolliver. Down at Princeton, my role there is just straight up one-on-one -on -one jazz trombone lessons. And they've got beautiful facilities down there. And the main thing I w was working on with the students down there is developing um, developing the language of Charlie Parker on trombone. In in these, they're referred to jazz lessons. But what I'm, but you know, you got to be able to play your instrument. So, what I like to do is with these kids beyond working on the bebop language, which is very, which is filled with chromaticism and playing over chord changes can be tricky. Was to find exercise, and this you guys should search this stuff out too, because it'll be good for you. When you're working on your instrument, you want to find exercises that like can address two, three, four needs with just one exercise. You know, killing two birds with one stone. And uh, I'm a big believer in that. Like um, for for students to work on tonguing. Um, I'll give them a Thelonious Monk composition called Four in One. It's uh, a lot of 16th notes, but on the trombone, what it can help you develop is your multiple tonguing, the use of alternate positions are going against the grain so you, can, so you don't have to tongue, and also range because the range of the piece is about two and a half octaves. 
So in one exercise that they're practicing, they're working on, they're getting the benefit of three different things, even though they're only working on one piece of music. So that's what I do down there. So, you know, half, usually half the lessons is working on trombonistic stuff as applied to jazz. And then second half is me basically playing piano and then blowing over the tunes while I'm playing and me showing them how to, how to use the, the language of Charlie Parker. For the elementary kids, I'm showing, all right, sit up, good posture, take a breath, keep your head up. It's like a marionette, keep, you know. And um, that's what it's like with the with the beginners. And, uh, you know, make sure you take a breath. This is called a pickup note, you know, that sort of stuff. Po oh yeah, for the beginners, posture, very important. And, and you know, Laura had asked me one thing and, uh, she had sent me a few questions ahead of time and there was one thing that just dawned on me and she was talking about you know um could you think of some things that you've learned as a performer that you then infused into your teaching with the students and uh this will be good for you guys to to know too in, in case you i would assume you know this but i i i don't know Right. So what does an audience remember about the performance? Let's say, you know, you know, let's say you're playing Brahms first symphony. What, what is the, what, what did the audience remember? Like the ending? Bingo. Thank you. You got it. They remember the ending. Awesome call. And then there's one other thing they'll always remember. Beginning. That's it. So here's what I tell the kids. I said, Hey, look, you know, if we start together and we finish together, as long as there's not a train wreck in the middle, everybody's going to think it's you guys are awesome. So, you know, it's like a little psychological trick like that. I mean, but that's that's been ingrained in me as a professional. Look, we start together, we finish together. You know, after that, you know, just do your job. But as long as we start and finish together, everybody's cool. You know. And if we don't finish together, here's a, here's, you know, you know, they love this one too, the echo effect. So I tell them, look, we finish the tune. If somebody play, let's say it's got a button right at the end, bop. If somebody plays an extra bop, everybody else keep on playing bops and then we'll do it softer. So it's like an echo. So we're supposed to go bop, 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 bop. I said, look, we're in business, you know? So I rehearsed that with these kids. I said, just in case, let's practice doing an echo effect. With it. I picked that up from uh, Pablo Fenolio, who uh, an incredible Venezuelan trombonist, the uh, product of El Sistema. And uh, he showed me that one on a gig one time. <laughs> I said, wow, this is incredible. This is incredible, you know, cause I was the one who played one beat after the tune was over. And he kept on, I was like, oh, wow. Right. So that was like something I, I picked up from work that I used directly with the students, you know. And as, as you work in professional situations, you end up picking up all these, all these little things that you wouldn't, you know, that maybe they're not talking about in school, you know. And uh, then when you can share that with your students, you know, 
we were on the money. So it's like, let's start together, let's finish together, and we're in business. Thank you so much um, for talking with us today. I think we are up on our hour and some of us have to go, but uh, okay. this was really awesome. Well, hey, look, thank you for having me. 